0: You're listening to the Cache Valley Insider, conversations with founders, leaders, and creators about why they live, work, and play in Cash Valley, Utah. The Cache Valley Insider is a production of the Cache Valley Chamber of Commerce. Become a chamber member and learn more at cashchamber.com. First of all, thank you all for attending and participating in today's Meet the Candidates event hosted by the Cache Valley Chamber of Commerce Legislative Affairs Committee. The Legislative Affairs Committee of the Chamber is very engaged during the legislative session and throughout the interim committee meetings. And it's an honor to serve with Karina Brown as one of the committee co-chairs. My name is Chad Campbell and I'm the president of the Bridgeland Technical College and Jamie Andrus, who is the president of the Chamber asked me to conduct today's meeting. The Legislative Affairs Committee has been organized into subcommittees where members of the Chamber and individuals from the community meet weekly throughout the legislative session. And at these weekly meetings, we invite subcommittees to present legislative topics and areas of focus for the entire group. The Chamber and its Legislative Affairs Committee work hard to be nonpartisan and to represent the interests of the Chamber members with our local and state political leaders. The Cache Valley Chamber of Commerce belongs to the Northern Utah Chamber Coalition, often known as NOC, which consists of all six Chambers of Commerce north of Salt Lake City and their respective legislators. And each Friday morning during the legislative session, um, of the legislature, NUC meets with all of the Northern Utah legislators. As our committee grows in numbers and influence, we'll continue this highly proactive approach to legislation. So beginning this series of candidate forums is a new function of the committee. The committee is hosting a series of these candidate forums during the 2020 election process. Today is our third forum and we've invited the candidates running for Utah's House District number four and House District five. The members participating today are Mary Kay Da Silva, Dan Johnson and Dan Johnson running for House District four and Lauren Abel and Casey Snyder running for House District five. Future meet the candidate forums have been scheduled for September 29th and for October 9th. So get those things, events on your your calendar. Okay, to our candidates, you will have time limits and there will be a sound at the end of your time limit. Please be civil and respectful. This is not a debate, but rather an opportunity for the community to get to know you better. Each candidate has received the format and the questions ahead of time and we will rotate the order of the candidate responses. For our first section, we're going to have our candidates introduce themselves. They've been given four minutes each for this. And the order for this particular part, we'll start with Mary Kay Da Silva, then Dan Johnson, then, then Lauren, and then with Casey Snyder. So let's go that far and Mary, feel free to get started.
1: Okay, great. Hello, my name is Mary De Silva. I was born in Logan and raised in River Heights. I graduated from Skyview High School and attended Utah State and Weber State to become a registered nurse. During school, my husband of 38 years and I worked the night shift at Sunshine Terrace. My parents have lived in Cache Valley for 60 years. My father Thad Box was the Dean of the College of Natural Resources at USU for 30 years. He raised my siblings and me with a deep love of Utah. He is a fierce advocate of public lands. My home growing up was filled with words like sustainability. Camping, hiking, hunting, and fishing were regular activities. My mother, Jenny Box, was the second president of the League of Women Voters in Logan. My earliest memories include following her from door to door registering voters. When she found out that Logan had no battered women's center, She opened our home to be a safe house. Police brought women and babies who were victims of domestic violence to stay with us. She helped found CAPSA. I was raised with a strong sense of responsibility to the community, social justice and devotion to preserving our public lands. After graduation, my husband and I moved to Texas. He was an elementary school teacher and I was a public health nurse. My career in public health included 17 years of disease surveillance. I investigated outbreaks of diseases in schools, daycares, nursing homes, and restaurants. I did the contact tracing and helped write the recommendations for control. I participated in emergency preparedness drills and responded to public health emergencies. I worked in jails and homeless shelters. I know how government works, funded on tax, revenue and uh, grant funding. I also worked in clinic settings with uninsured people with contagious conditions such as TB and HIV. I became infected with tuberculosis in the clinic and took four months of antibiotics. I know what it is to not be able to pay a copay or fill a prescription. I have been in homes where death came suddenly or an illness like meningitis left a baby with disability. I worked with people whose life expectancy was shortened by untreated diabetes and hypertension. People who had to stop working because of arthritis while their teeth crumbled in their mouth because they couldn't afford to see a doctor or dentist. I have worked with people who lost their home when they became sick and couldn't work. In 2018, Utah's passed Proposition 3 to expand Medicaid, giving life-saving access to a- to 130% of poverty level. House District 4 voted 60% in favor of expanding Medicaid. However, the legislature did not listen to their own constituents. Every Republican in the legislature voted to overturn the results of the election and deny thousands of Utahns basic health care. This is the main reason I am running for office. If a legislator does not listen to the will of the people, he deserves a challenge. My campaign is funded by small donations from individuals. I will not take any gifts or gratuities from corporations. There is a lot of special interest money flowing to our legislators. I will not accept corporate gifts. If I'm elected, I will work for you. Thank you for this opportunity to speak to you.
0: Thank you, Mary, appreciate it. Dan, why don't you go ahead?
2: Very good, Um, Mary. uh, I just want to say uh, as Dan Johnson and as your representative, I'm thankful for this opportunity to to get to meet you a bit and hear a little bit about your life and also what you believe in. And, uh, you've had a remarkable life and, uh, and, and I'm also thankful for your husband who has spent his, uh, his time teaching kids. Um, I grew up on a farm in Eastern Nebraska and that's where I learned the value of hard work. And, uh, you know, because of the fact that uh, my parents died when I was little, uh, I kind of got farmed out. Uh, you know, if I would have that would have happened to me today, I would have been awarded the state. But uh, I found a way to live alone and get myself through high school, and and uh, and then I had to find out, you know, uh, what are you going to do in life? And many of us have to figure that out. And I decided, you know, I wanted to become a teacher. Uh, And I did that uh, when I was really just a little kid. And I always wanted to do that. And that's what I've always done. So I spent 50 years in uh, uh, public and higher education and working in charter schools as well. And uh, so I've worked with preschool kids all the way through working in the College of Education and Human Services with students who are uh, becoming um, teachers. And so it's been a, a great experience for me serving as a a teacher and as a coach and as a mentor to students in activities. And then, of course, uh, 42 of the 50 years were in school administration. Uh, In Omaha, Nebraska, uh, in the Miller Public School Systems, I was made a principal when I was 29 and I had the opportunity to see a grow a growing school district, and to understand that I worked in the farming uh, communities uh, uh, in central Nebraska, and then in the oil fields and the overthrust belt with gas development in Wyoming. Uh, and through those years, I I worked on five different college degrees, including a Ph.D. So. Uh, serving as a superintendent and uh, an in, uh, in assistant superintendent in Tooele County. Uh, I supervised 2,000 employees, had a budget of $120 million. Uh, I understood during uh, 2008 what it's like to have people uh, fear for for fear of their jobs. And I understand how important work is for people to be independent, to be able to provide for their families, to stand on their own two feet. And as a Republican, that's what I believe that we should provide for all people and give them that opportunity to be able to earn their way. So I spent my life doing that. The legislature has been a great experience for me because, to tell you the truth, there are a few people there, very few, who have actually been a teacher. No one's been a school administrator. No one's been a school superintendent. And uh, so I bring a a really a a wealth of background and experience to dealing with a, a part of the state budget that that is spent on a vast majority, or of of the state budget, in the billions of dollars, just in that one area. I have some really important concerns, and one, uh, you know, it, it is looking up for public education, but it goes far beyond that. Public health and safety are really important to me, and uh, the well-being of individuals, and so. Uh, we did expand uh, Medicaid and and we uh, and we, and we did uh, move that to a place where uh, actually people who can't afford different things uh, are are able to get uh, other federal programs and so we're still moving in that direction and I think Mary Hin so on an important point to look out for that and to to move it forward and that's one of the things I want to do. Infrastructure needs right here in Logan are really important. You look at highway thirty. You look at uh, uh, 3200 South and putting in stoplights there. You look at the connectivity between, um, that's my uh, tone there. So I just want you to know I'm looking out for you. Um, I think uh, our work at the state legislature is really important. What happens here locally though, is the most important thing. And I wanna take good care of our people right here. So thanks for this opportunity today.
0: Dan, thank you very much. Um, Lauren, we'll turn to you now.
3: Okay, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity and the platform here. Um, So, I'm Lauren Abel. I live in Providence in the South Valley, and I'm looking to represent the South Valley District 5 in the House of Representatives. I've lived here for a little over four years. Um, I'm actually mostly from Virginia, although we moved around quite a bit. Um, I've lived uh, all over the country. I've lived in Kentucky. I've lived in Maryland. I've lived in California. uh, I've lived across the ocean. I've lived in England. Uh, So I have a pretty broad experience of a lot of different places uh, and a lot of different communities. Um, uh, At the present time, I work as an analyst for a company called Harkon. Um, We provide training, organizational design, and and work analysis uh, services, but Uh, In the past, I've worked in many different sectors, um, mostly, uh, I would say, in or around the federal government. Um, I served in the Coast Guard, I worked for the U.S. Navy, Um, I spent time teaching uh, English as a second language, uh, and I actually started out as an archaeologist. And these days around Cache Valley, if I'm not working, I usually spend my time either volunteering with CAPSA as an advocate, uh, coaching uh, my daughter's soccer team or helping out at her school. So that's kind of where you'll find me uh, these days. As for why I decided to run and what uh, is important to me, um, I feel very strongly uh, similar to Mary that we as a country have drifted away from representatives who actually represent the voice of their people. And I wanted to ensure that the people of South Valley had that choice um, because your vote should be your voice in your government. Um, And for me, education is a huge component of that voice. Um, Formal education in the form of our teachers, our students, staff, and administrators um, who are, you know, actively building the next generation of Utahns who will shape our state and shape our country. But it's also a, a critical element of educated and informed public discourse. Critical thought and creative problem solving that will shape what we uh, as a community want our state and our future to look like
0: Thank you Lauren we appreciate your time and your comments it's a pleasure to meet you um, if you're if you're finished
4: we'll move on to Casey yes sir great well thank you Chad thanks for and, and to the rest of the chamber for letting me participate this afternoon I gotta say it <laughs> those are three great bios and you got me coming up here last so I'm uh you know I'm I'm in the presence of greatness and I hope not to disappoint the rest of you by works into some of the things that we've tried to do here uh, on the south end but again my name is Casey Snyder I'm uh I'm actually originally from Liberty Utah which is about 10 miles south of our current farm here in paradise uh, I grew up milking cows and put my way through School and, and university working on the dairy before school and I was fortunate enough uh, to attend Utah State where I married the Cache County Dairy Princess. So um, above all the things I've done that's probably the greatest I uh, and I'm, I'll take that all the way to the bank. I'm I, The dairy kid married the dairy princess that's pretty much how dreams come true. So um, I have a small farm here in Paradise like I say. Um, my wife and I are both proud Aggies, absolutely. Um, and we, uh, we graduated from Utah State and then we worked back in DC for a while where I worked for US Senate and the US House of Representatives. I worked for um, Bob Bennett, the House Natural Resources Committee and Congressman Rob Bishop. Um, in about 2011, we came home and had our, started our family here. We have two kids um, who are full of it, but also full of the farm. And we've, we've been fortunate enough to raise them in this, in this wonderful place. Um, I've, I have a background in natural resources and political science, and I have a, a master's degree um, from Johns Hopkins in environmental policy. So my, my, my background's been in, in largely in natural resource and ag policy, um, which for the south end has is, is been a pretty big thing, is, is our communities outside of Logan, and many of you know are still largely rural, and uh, we've, while we're, we're experiencing some of the challenges that, that come to all of us associated with growth, um, agriculture and some of those associated industries are still a huge part. And what I've tried to do in my service in the, in the legislature is, is represent uh, that industry, those people, and, and the communities here on the south end. Um, one of the things that's been really important to me in my service is making sure that I'm out and about, um, I I try to attend at least once a quarter my city council meetings I believe you can't represent people you don't know and I think if you talk to the mayors who whom I've had the pleasure of working with they'd they'd say we I've I tried and, and hopefully I've, I've represented them well I also believe um, the south end of the valley is still very conservative in our views of the world and so I've tried to take that to the legislature I've I, along with my my good friend here, Dan, um, believe in the importance of limited government and individual responsibility and choice, and we've done what we can to hopefully inspire innovation uh, from the individual level, as that's something that's really important to many of us that, that sort of uh, subscribe to that belief system. But again, I'm just happy to be here, so grateful for the chance to meet all of you and talk to you about some of the things we believe and uh, look forward to the conversation. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Casey. Appreciate that. We're going to move on now to question number one. And um, the order that we're going to have uh, you respond to question number one is, Dan Johnson, you get to go first. Mary Kay De Silva, you get to go second. Casey, you get to go third. And Lauren, we have you last this time. And then we will rotate that as we um, move on. Remember, you have two minutes uh, each to address these, this question. The question is, what do you think we as a county or state ought to do to prepare for the next pandemic? So, Dan.
2: Very good. I want to make sure that I was unmuted. I, I, I think this is really an interesting question. I like it. One of the things I think about the pandemic as we watched uh, and unfold right at the beginning in our country, there was one thing that w- became very apparent to me, and that was that we were not prepared. We, did, we had supply lines that were overseas, and things that we needed in order for to address the pandemic were not in our supply chain because we didn't control it. And there was a panic. And so we were working very, very diligently uh, at the at the na- national level to create a lot of that stuff and be able to, to disseminate it. So I think one of the things that we can do to prepare for the next pandemic is to take stock of the things that we didn't have and develop ways in this country to develop those and to stockpile them. Because these kinds of things... Uh, uh, cause a lot of people a lot of problems, and they cause them very very quickly. So I think I think that is one thing. The other thing is that in the United States, we need to continue to foster a research and development so that we have individuals and people who are ready to go when certain sort of things arise. And so fostering our uh, uh, our ability to uh, fund science and science development, I think, is uh, is a very important thing. Another thing is just in the communication of it. This all filters down. We need to make sure that we have really, really strong methods of communication so that people understand the elements of a pandemic and what can be done uh, for them personally to uh, interface with it and, and for them to be safe.
0: Thank you, Dan. Mary, we'll turn to you.
1: Okay, great. Thank you. And I wish I had an hour to talk on this subject. You've only given me two minutes, so I'll do my best. To be clear, we are still in the middle of this pandemic, but there are four things we can do right now to survive this pandemic and be ready for the next one. First, we need good health care for all Utahns. The first case of community-acquired COVID-19 occurred in an uninsured working adult in Park City. Healthcare has become an issue of national security. We are only as strong as our weakest link. Number two, we need school nurses. Utah has an abysmal standard of funding of one nurse to 7,000 students. Logan School District has exactly one nurse for all 10 campuses. She is a wonderful, caring, competent individual, but this is completely unacceptable. We can also change the opt-out procedure for immunizations in schools. Right now, parents can opt out of required vaccinations for their children by watching a video and signing a waiver. We should strengthen vaccine requirements in school. Number three, we should have a certified infection preventionist on staff in every hospital and large medical facility. Number four, nursing homes, mead packing plants, and jails have been hard hit with COVID. They should have mandatory infection control training for all employees, and we should fund sanitarians for more frequent inspections. Paid sick leave will also prevent sick employees from coming to work ill. People were surprised with COVID-19, but this was predicted. Pandemic response plans already exist and they were deployed in previous outbreaks such as SARS and Ebola. Epidemiologists have long warned about new and emerging pathogens that can disrupt society. The great tragedy of the 21st century is that this administration trashed the Pandemic Response Plan and cut funding to the CDC. We need to build back a stronger public health infrastructure. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Mary, appreciate that.
4: Casey? Great, thank you. I, you know, I kind of take a, a little maybe different tact on this, I think um, one of the worst things that you can do to a community is instill in them fear. One of the greatest thing you could ever do to people is give them hope and confidence. And I think what we've done wrong more than anything else during this pandemic is, is instilled in a community um, something that goes well beyond caution, but uh, I think something that is, could be aptly labeled fear. And I think that is largely because we haven't been consistent in our messaging. We haven't been uh, consistent in how we make decisions, and we haven't been consistent in terms of what the problems are, what the solutions are. I think as we go into future pandemics, I think we need to look at fundamentally restructuring how we respond to them. The governor right now is operating under a state of emergency. That state of emergency has been going on for six months. The, that that power granted to the governor was never contemplated to be used in this way. And it was, and I think as that's rolled out, we've we've created conflict because we're we're consistently being told to do one thing from Salt Lake and something different here in the Bear River Health Department. In 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 my opinion, as we prepare for future pandemics, we should empower local health departments. I have complete confidence in those in this community in terms of how they regulate, how they make decisions, how they provide prescriptions to how to respond to things, I don't have that same level of confidence coming from this, from Salt Lake. I just don't. And it's not because there's anything nefarious there. I just think how we do things in Cache Valley is fundamentally different how we than how we do things on the Wasatch Front. So in my opinion, as we prepare for future pandemics, we should be empowering our local health departments. We should be working with local governments to make decisions and giving them the flexibility and options to do so. Now that I think that also comes at the cost of making sure we're cooperative and we're consistent, that cities and counties are working together hand in hand, hand in glove, to make some of these hard decisions. So I I think going forward, solid planning from the local level is the best option.
0: Thank you, Casey. Lauren? Uh,
3: Okay, well, I have the advantage of going last on this one, and uh, thus the advantage of being able to say I agree with uh, nearly everyone else who has spoken uh, on many, many points. Um, the, the, the coordination element uh, in particular, um, I, I find uh, to be a fairly universal concern um, among us and among um, the, the public in general. You know, when the next pandemic strikes, we may or may not be able to rely on the federal government um, at the time to provide a coordinated national response as we were not able to this time. Uh, and continue to not be able to. Um, And Utah, in my view, needs to be ready to protect its citizens. Cache Valley needs to be ready to protect its citizens, um, regardless of that coordinated federal response. Uh, Like Representative Johnson, um, I agree that uh, supply chains and some internal resilience uh, is in order. Um, We don't know what the next pandemic will be necessarily. We can't stockpile tests but we can develop uh, robust testing protocols. We can stockpile uh, PPE, uh, personal protective equipment. We can put in place protocols to uh, revert to, to immediately ramp up production of needed items to buttress local supply chains, to work with local industry to get what we need. Uh, We can contract with the private sector for needed services if the public sector uh, becomes severely uh, impacted by you know, out of work, or I'm sorry, not out of work, uh, ill citizens. Um, but you know, most importantly, and I agree with Mary here, is to operationalize and fund surge healthcare services for the ill. No Utah should be left in medical debt from COVID or any other pandemic. Uh, pandemic. Pandemic unemployment benefits should be made readily available without bureaucratic stumbling or system crashes or waiting for weeks, uh, etc. I could sit here and recite the various pandemic planning manuals available, all of them available before COVID, um, and all of the various techniques and response elements that are available to policymakers. Uh, they're, they're all out there, but fundamentally, and I agree with um, with you all on this, uh, a coordinated public health response is essential. I continue to be sort of fascinated and horrified by the varying, the wildly varying narratives that um, pervade the public response. Um, and what I believe can make the next pandemic difference is our ability to learn from this what is and is not really up for debate. Politics should not be allowed to infiltrate and corrupt the language. That was your time. The... Shoot. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I stand down.
0: <laughs> Lauren, thank you very much. Uh, let's go on to question number two. The order for question number two is Casey Snyder and then Laura and Abel, and Dan Johnson, and then Mary Kay DeSilva. Again, two minutes for each response. Since some sectors of Utah's economy have been decimated, like tourism and others, how do you propose we go about helping these businesses and organizations? And Casey, let's start with you.
4: Great, thanks, and just to clarify, clarify here real quick. So we live on a farm down here. There is a fly in my office. So if you see me doing like ninja swats and things, I'm trying to catch this little bugger, but he's not able to do so and everybody's watching. So, um, but to the question, one of the things I think that really we need to do uh, in terms of helping some of these industries get back to where they were is goes to my previous answer relative to confidence. We need to let people know how diseases are transmitted, what's safe, what's not. And then frankly, let government get out of the way. I think a lot of what we've seen occur over the last six or seven months relative to COVID is a a government saying, you're shut down today, you're open tomorrow, and then you might be shut down again. And that yo-yo effect is not good for any industry. And I think what people want more than anything else is to be able to return to some sort of sense of normality back to their lives and open business. I don't think there's a business in this valley that wants a handout. But what they do want is certainty and, and rules under which they can operate and to move forward in a way that provides um, food on the table and financial means for their families. I see it in, in agriculture, for example. We've, we had a, an industry that was decimated in the spring because restaurants, which is 50% of that industry, were largely closed. And, they've, and they had to make sense of it. And there was funds that came from the state from, and from the federal government. But what that industry didn't want is, was a check. They wanted to, a market to sell their products and rule certain rules that they could operate under and get their products and goods to market in a way that's safe and healthy. So in my mind, the best thing we can do to help tourism or whatever industry is currently suffering is to find ways to open up our economies again safely and allow people to feel confident again that they can participate in a world that they used to know in a way that's not gonna make them sick. That to me is the best way.
0: Thank you, Casey. Let's go to Lauren.
3: Uh, okay, um, so uh, while we could enact the most stringent virus control measures in the country, we could be the safest place you could ever possibly visit or want to visit. Um, tourism and hospitality industries remain reliant on people's ability to travel safely. Um, in the U.S. at this time, that confidence is just not high, and that, re- that is among Americans, that's also among the international population. Utah is a popular destination, not just for Utahns, but Americans across the country and for folks around the world. So while I have no doubt, none at all, that our tourism industry will rebound successfully, um, especially given that Utah is, uh, you know, offers a a plethora of outdoor winter activities. Um, In the current travel climate, um, businesses are suffering and our state's economic health will suffer as a result. I would love to tell you that I have a, uh, strategic program and plan for exactly how to uh, target and and help all of those those businesses and, and help this entire situation. And uh, unfortunately, I'm not in a position to to offer such a uh, an extreme outcome. Um, but in my research and uh, you know looking at this question, um, you know the the things that government does to bolster the travel uh, I'm sorry the tourism industry. Um, are the things that we need to continue to be doing, bolstering Utah's worldwide reputation as a safe and healthy place to be uh, and to stay, um, helping to gild our reputation um, as as a place that people want to go. Um, I was very impressed with the Utah Office of Tourism efforts um, and would continue to support their strategy um, as I I currently see it for rebuilding tourism demand in Utah.
0: Thank you, Lauren. Dan, let's go to you next. Uh,
2: Thank you, this is a great question. And as I read it uh, and thought deeply about this and and, uh, did a little research on it, I'm noticing in the question it says tourism and others. Tourism, of course, is one that uh, I think it does depend greatly upon whether or not people do feel safe here in, in in this state. And I think it goes back to you know, what is the plan? What have we told people? What, what, what is it that's really the truth? And, and I think the test is whether or not we're actually able to see these industries do something and then people see that they actually can work, they can come here, tourism can, can flourish because the state's actually a safe place to be. And so I think it's really important to have a good education plan in place uh, about that. Another thing is, is that I don't think it's the place of the Utah state legislature to try to uh, tax people in order to uh, pay our way out of a pandemic. I think the way to do it is through supply and demand. And that, that means that uh, as we have safe places, as we have business start to reopen, if people feel confident that they can go there, Uh, that will build back and I think we have to be patient of of all the things we have to be patient and we have to continue to do those things that allow people to actually use a business and for that to grow so I think one of the things that we can do too is make sure we keep taxes low make sure that we keep income tax rates low and, and make sure that people have jobs that's what builds jobs education builds jobs and as people have money to spend, they will spend it in businesses. And uh, that, that's how I think this grows back, is patience over time with the supply side of it and the demand side of it handling it for us. Thanks.
0: Ben, thank you very much. Let's go to Mary.
1: Okay, thank you. Well, tourism has been decimated because it's unsafe to gather during the pandemic and patrons will not return to see the theater or attend festivals while the risk is so great. Government can assure that high-speed internet becomes available to all households, just like other utilities. Employees and students need to be able to work from home as much as possible, so subsidized broadband for all would boost the economy. We can provide temporary stimulus for the affected industries, but what they need is containment of this viral outbreak. To restore prosperity, we must eliminate the pandemic. It will not be easy. It has become extraordinarily difficult with the fatigue of the issue, the politics involved, and the outright disbelief of many to trust anything that comes from those in authority. Legislators must model desired behaviors. We must be trustworthy by upholding medical leaders and making the hard choices. We lose faith when we put businessmen in charge of public health and spend our precious public health dollars on no-bid contracts for worthless medications, phone apps that don't work, and tests that are not accurate. All Utahns must have good quality health care and strong public health departments. That is our quickest way back to prosperity. And did you know that this year the legislators gave themselves a pay raise in 2020, the same year that they eliminated funding for safety net and health and dental clinics for underserved Utahns. Let's stop wasting our precious public health dollars on no-bid contracts to personal friends of lawmakers and have medical experts guide our policies. Thank you.
0: Mary, thank you very much. Okay, it's time to move on to question number three the order for question number three Lauren we're going to start with you then we'll go with Casey and then Mary and Dan um, uh, we'll get to you last again remember two minutes for each each candidate and the question is with the growth projections for Utah and Cache Valley how do you propose we balance growth with infrastructure needs and still continue the quality of life we currently have?
3: Uh, Okay, so um, as a transplant to Utah, I am very grateful for the opportunity to live here, even if my family might be considered outside growth. Um, But the idea of balancing growth versus quality of life kind of presents them as two sides to a coin, two things that are at odds with each other, but that doesn't actually have to be the case growth can bring opportunity to a community um, that it wasn't able to support before or wasn't eligible for before things like improved internet service, ability to support small businesses, attracting external interests and money. Um, When people think of mom and pop shops, the idea is that they're part of this, you know, rural community life when the current reality is in this country that there's actually far more support for small businesses in urban areas than in areas like ours. When people think of infrastructure, they tend to think of things like, you know, bridges and roads and sewer lines. But there are other elements of this that can create connected rather than fragmented communities, well-planned and distributed schools, transit connectivity, support for localized business districts. Um, When we talk about growth, there are two concepts that actually are at odds, which is density versus spread. And here in Cache Valley, we have some very natural boundaries that make that a very uh, significant concern for us um and and both uh represent you know problems um as a community with a highly agricultural identity we don't want to lose those farmlands or those open spaces that make our valley so beautiful and so unique you know personally i value the open spaces around where i live and when somebody recently sold off a big chunk of that and and uh to a developer i kind of cringed Um, that was that was not optimal Um, But, you know, at the same time, we don't want high-rise, smog-filled urban center in the middle of our valley either. So how do we kind of cope with those two uh, opposing demands? And do I have all the solutions? Again, no, not exactly. But um, I see a trend, possibly unintentional, towards what I would call micro-community development, what other uh, places have called the 20-minute neighborhood, a place where the most things that you find for quality life are found within a 20-minute transit from your house. Now, in the valley, of course, that could put you in Idaho, depending on where you live. But... Um, the, the micro-local community connection, increasing walkability, reducing reliance on cars to help improve our air quality, um, creating uh, what I would call spread out density, um, improves customer bases at local businesses, creating micro economies, um, and reduces some of the perceived disadvantages. That was your time. And I'm too wordy once again, sorry about that.
0: <laughs> Lauren, thank you very much. Casey, let's go to you next.
4: No, Thank you. Um, you know, when it comes to growth and, and development, um, first and foremost, I'm, I'm always going to side uh, with private property rights. I think that's a fundamental question here um, in our country. And that's, you know, for large portion of our society, property is where they derive at least a significant portion of their wealth. Um, however, I, I think as we move forward, as we're growing, um, there are costs associated with growth or development of property rights that are assumed collectively by the group and not uh, focused on the individual, which I don't think is a fair uh, free market approach. For example, um, if I build out, let's say, a half a mile from Logan, the costs of serving my home or my development in terms of snow removal or garbage removal, removal, water, power, all those things are going to be significantly less than if I build 10 miles south of Logan. And yet the price to develop 10 miles south of Logan in what would be a rural economy or, or farm ground is an identical cost uh, t- as to what it would be for someone to develop right in town. And so I think that's a misappropriation of costs. And I think as we're looking at as a community going forward, um, those that would grow or, or um, make transactions that would be to their personal benefit have to not have to assume in some measure the costs that they're applying collectively on the community. I don't think that's, otherwise it's not, it's not fair and it's not free market. So in, in my mind, if we can get away from some of the sort of collectivism, Um, a notion that just because I'm 10 miles outside of town and want to develop, you should build the road. Rather, and look at how individuals who are making those choices should assume some of those costs. In the long run, I think that's the best way to balance balance growth and protect individual property rights.
0: Casey, thank you very much. Mary, let's go to you next. Okay,
1: thank you. Our population is growing and people's needs are changing. An increasing number of people on the same amount of land means a greater demand for education, health, and welfare for each person. Each person will have a smaller amount of space. For us to maintain high quality of life for future generations, we must increase management of our environment. We must work for sustainability, maintaining our needs without compromising the ability of future generations to meet theirs. Sustainability occurs when the actions of the present generation avoids depletion of natural resources to keep an ecological balance so that society's quality of life doesn't decrease. Legislators should not try to regulate the size or kind of house people live in, but their actions should encourage good stewardship of the land and its resources. We can make recycling more attractive and encourage reduction of single use plastics. We can make available funds for mass transit and place penalties on wasteful practices that pollute and use excessive resources. It is our responsibility to make good education, health care, and safe living for every person in our area. That should include keeping farmlands, dairy, and wetlands that feed our residents and provide jobs healthy and productive. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Mary. Uh, Dan, let's go
2: to you. Thank you. Uh, I again find this a great question. Uh, It's one that's always on people's mind. And so let's just talk about this for just a minute. Um, One of the things about growth is just the intersection of all these different governmental units that exist. Uh, Here you have uh, you have city government, you have county government you have state government, and you have different sort of departments that intersect. One of the things that's really good that I think that needs to be continued here is the discussions that happen uh, between the various uh, different uh, units uh, across the state, like uh, UDOT talking to uh, transportation. And we'll use this as an example. Uh, I recently uh, spoke with uh, 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 Mr. Barros uh, at UDOT. Well, what happens with UDOT, and what happens to, uh, and what happens Logan City, and what they're developing? Those things really matter, and those things affect health because it affects air quality. So it is this long-range planning that I think is really important that we have to center on here and be able to identify what are the elements of the infrastructures that need to be developed and what impacts do they have on life? I agree with uh, Representative Snyder. One of the things that we have to do is, this growth happens, as the city of Logan, for example, for us here, expands, what are the intersecting roads that connect with the north-south roads? Uh, How do we protect property for people's individual uh, property rights? Uh, I think that's just, uh, and it's an American dream for people. meaning to own their own farm, to own their own home. We we have to protect that. But at the same time, we have to realize, we have to realize that uh, we just can't do it uh, in a vacuum. It takes uh, uh, coordinated planning, strategic planning.
0: Thank you, Dan. We appreciate all of your responses. Uh, It's time now to move on to question number four. The order for question number four, we're gonna start with you, Mary, and then Dan will go to you, Lauren, and then Casey will finish up with you. Again, you have two minutes uh, for this question. And the question is, How do you propose that we balance continued cost increases in housing against the slow rise in wages? Let's go ahead and start with you, Mary.
1: Okay, thank you. I have done a lot of block walking and door knocking in this campaign in all the neighborhoods in Logan. The economic uncertainty of this past year is real and dampening the aspirations of many young families who want to own a home of their own. Most of the new construction is targeted to the high end consumers with very large houses. The economic pressure to maximize profits has resulted in more of the gigantic houses. Young families and middle to low income earners have fewer options for new construction. Older houses are being subdivided. Farmland is being eaten up with apartments and the desire to live close to family is balanced with what jobs and housing are available. As our population grows, housing becomes scarcer and the market forces prices up. My two nephews in their 30s earn good wages as an electrician and a welder, but find that buying a home is extremely difficult. While zoning is the purview of the city council, the state can consider incentives for construction of quality, modest sized homes for the middle income earners. The state must also continue programs that help with direct assistance to low wage earners. We are better if we can prevent foreclosures and homelessness before they happen. Housing subsidies prevent evictions and are better than maintaining homeless shelters and jails. Housing assistance creates stability in families and reduces poverty. Stable homes promote good school performance and less involvement with law enforcement. Subsidized housing creates safer communities, so we must support housing for everyone. Thank
0: you. Thank you, Mary. Dan, let's go to you now.
2: Thanks. Uh, There's a a lot of different kinds of things that can be done. Uh, Some of the times, uh, though, the issues around this, uh, they involve a lot of regulatory kinds of things. A lot of people don't like regulatory things. And uh, some, require, uh, some require maybe some incentives that uh, promote uh, people being able to buy a home and, and to have a place to live, which I think is great. So I think there's some strategies. One is that we have to take a look at whether we want the state or the local government to deal with inclusionary zoning. Uh, in other words, if you're going to zone an area for housing, what do you require that's included in it? Is it low income housing, uh, modest housing, modest housing of some sort? Uh, well, uh, that, that's one idea. Another one is rent control. Do you want uh, the uh, folks who own property and rent it out to be told by the state or by local government that the amount of rent that's charged or the increase in rent is controlled? That's another option. Another one is vouchers as a source of income for people. So if they have a voucher that state provided, uh, do you want the state government to start providing money to provide vouchers to people so they can buy homes? Uh, a fourth op- option is housing trust funds. Uh, well, we have a trust fund, the Oline Walker Trust Fund. State of Utah puts several millions of dollars a year in the Oline Walker Trust Fund in order to be for people to make applications for building of homes. And another thing is the state tax incentives. So allowing people to get into a home, give them a tax incentive uh, to do that. So those are five really important issues that could be addressed in answering this important question. I think the decision that we have to make is how much do we want it to be controlled by the state? Local control of such things. So uh, with that, I'll conclude. Thank you.
0: Dan, thank you very much. Lauren, let's go to you.
3: Uh, Okay. Um, I actually started from a a slightly different perspective, which was that about the wages. Um, And, you know, I am a thousand percent um, on board with the belief in the dignity of work. Um, However, I also believe that it should not be A radical belief to think that full time work earns you the ability to live in your community, contribute to the local economy and raise a family there. Um, If anything, I think this pandemic has demonstrated that how we value work in this country is completely inverted. Um, Some of those who are paid the lowest um, have been on the front lines of this disaster um, and providing services that hopefully we now realize that we can't function without. Um, so I think the, you know, decreasing uh, value of wages is, is, a, is a real situation that we need to deal with. Um, however, the cost of housing um, is a variable and a complex equation as both Mary and Dan have alluded to, um, you know, involving how much space we are willing to give up to higher density housing, where and at what cost. Um, you know, other externalities, zoning policy, infrastructure demands, community services, transportation issues that tie into environmental impacts. All of these things, um, you know, affect the cost of housing and investment in housing affordability solutions is not time or money wasted. Um, As Dan uh, implied, there's not a single solution and changes should be made gradually at various levels um, and with due consideration to their trickle-down effects. Um, you know as I mentioned in my previous response with infrastructure investment and planning our communities continue to be available to, to all uh, rather than driving out um, our young folks especially uh, who who cannot find jobs that that afford you know housing here. Um, so I think with done with planning and intention density and spread can be balanced in order to keep the causing house cost of housing down um, and help us ensure that growth leads to opportunity rather than destruction. Thank you.
0: Lauren, thank you
4: very much. Uh,
0: Casey, we'll conclude with you.
3: Uh,
4: thank you, and I, I appreciate it. I, <clears throat> I guess we'll go last here. I think there's, there's a lot that's said, uh, that's worth thinking about. Um, but at a fundamental level, I actually disagree that government should play a, a significant role in either the cost of housing or the cost of wages. Mm-hmm. I, m- my own perspective is that I think markets are what drive decisions and supply and demand. Ultimately, will solve some of these problems. And now there's there is I would say a, a really significant demand for housing right now in this valley. And how many times have we seen not just in our community but in other places, other places sort of this NIMBY attitude and the, and a desire to have government shut down a high density housing project? The market would bear it out. A developer is willing to take the risk, and we have government saying. Uh no, we we you can't do that and the neighbors disagree. And I think that's what's driving large measure of this. On the wages side, you've got basic entry-level jobs all over this valley, from JBS to Walmart, jobs for people start can start with no uh significant education, and they're making well over the federally mandated minimum wage. And that's because there's not enough people to fill those jobs and the markets put the pressure to raise wages to make sure that you have people to fill those slots. So I, I believe in the long run. If we can find ways to, to reasonably r- remove regulation and let markets push some of these answers, we're all going to be better off. I think the, the market will fix uh, irregularities regards to housing, and I think the market will fix uh, irregular, irregularities as it relates to wages. So thank you. Casey,
0: thank you very much. Let me take this opportunity once again to thank all of our candidates for participating in today's event. One of the advantages of using technology for this event is that um, like Karina asked earlier, it can be recorded and made available to the chamber members and others um, so that we might not even know who all sees or gets to learn about you from this experience Again, let me thank you for your participation. Karina, I'm going to put you on the spot for two seconds since you're the co-chair of this committee. Is there anything else that you would like to say before we end? Oh, I just want to thank you, uh, Mary, Dan, Lauren, and Casey, uh,
3: for your time today. It's it's been great to hear from all of you and and listen to your different perspectives. and, And we appreciate your service and all that you do.
0: With that said, we'll go ahead and conclude today's meeting. Thanks again, everybody, for participating. Thanks for listening to the Cash Valley Insider. For more conversations, listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are found. Join the chamber at cashchamber.org.